This is an ABC podcast. Hello, this is David Rutledge. You're in the Philosopher's Zone. Welcome to the program. And welcome to a conversation this week that I think is going to be of particular interest to anyone familiar with the following scenario. Let's say you have a pain in your stomach and you go to the doctor. The doctor examines you and can't find anything apparently wrong. So they send you off for a round of diagnostic tests, which may be unpleasant or invasive or expensive, and those tests come back inconclusive. They still can't find anything wrong. So then the doctor refers you to a psychotherapist of some kind because the doctor has come to the conclusion that in the absence of any objective diagnostic evidence, your problem must be psychosomatic. Meanwhile, you still have that stomach pain, but now it's accompanied by anxiety over whether or not therapy is the right option. It feels like you're physically ill. What if you do, in fact, have some sort of physical condition that's now going untreated simply because nothing showed up on a bunch of tests? Well, this situation is more common than you might think, and it's particularly common at the moment among people who are suffering the effects of long COVID, which often presents as a mysterious range of symptoms for which there's no discernible cause. Well, my guest this week believes that many, many doctors are inadequately equipped to deal with long COVID and other conditions that present with medically unexplained symptoms, not because they're unprofessional or unintelligent or bad people, but because they're laboring under a basic philosophical misapprehension about the relationship between mind and body. And this bad philosophy can result in very bad outcomes for sick patients. Diane O'Leary is an adjunct professor of philosophy at the University of Maryland, and her work takes place at the intersection of philosophy of mind, philosophy of medicine, and bioethics. My research is basically focused on medicine's picture of mind and body, and really that boils down to the difference between what the psyche does and what the body does in diseases that purely affect the body. I mean, of course, every disease affects the mind and every psychiatric problem has a root in the brain. But setting that aside, what I try to sort out is the difference between the psyche did it and the body did it in everyday medical practice. So mostly my work is founded in philosophy of mind, is trying to sort out what picture of mind and body medicine is working with and trying to find the mistakes in it and to correct them. But then I also go clinically into medicine to try to sort out how those misunderstandings actually play out when each of us goes to see the doctor. How do those misunderstandings about mind and body actually interfere with medical care? And what is the evidence we have that it's causing problems? And the evidence there is very substantial. And then in addition to that, of course, there are ethical problems that arise um, as a result of these confusions because every patient has an equal right to access medical care, right? And the way things have worked out, confusions about mind and body and medicine have made it so that people with conditions that aren't readily diagnosed actually can't get access to medical care a lot of times. So there's a justice issue there. And I I don't know that we'll end up talking about it. There's also a social justice issue because obviously psychosomatic symptoms are primarily diagnosed in women. So there's a long legacy of hysteria there too. Well, one thing that comes through very strongly in your work is this notion that the ground of medicine is philosophical first and foremost, which is going to raise some hackles in the profession, I would imagine. It goes, it goes against this popular understanding of medicine as a science. We, we talk about the health sciences. Can you enlarge on that a little? How do you see medicine as grounded in philosophy? 
I'm not sure that I'm committed to the idea that medicine generally is grounded in philosophy. I mean, every science is grounded in philosophy in some sense. Um, I would say that everyday medical practice is grounded in philosophy in an extremely practical nuts and bolts way that most people don't recognize. So the way that works is that in cases of diagnostic uncertainty, where, you know, the doctor looks into the cause of symptoms, doesn't sort it out readily, she'll have to say, well, is this a problem with a disease I don't recognize, problem with the body, or is this a problem with the mind? Are your symptoms caused by psychological distress that you don't recognize? Because that does happen sometimes. So this problem arises, this question of did the mind do it, did the body do it, in every case of diagnostic uncertainty, and it turns out diagnostic uncertainty is extremely common in medicine. In fact, by many standards, half of symptoms are diagnostically uncertain, medically unexplained. So in all of these cases, the doctor is relying on medicine's picture of mind and body to proceed, to decide how to care for the patient. If the mind-body ideas are confused, obviously that care is going to be bad. So that's where we end up. Now, what's interesting here is that you identify a philosophical confusion about mind and body or, or mind-body dualism that threatens to compromise good clinical practice. So let's get into that. And I'd ask you first, how is mind-body dualism commonly understood among doctors? I think that medicine's picture of mind-body dualism is pretty much the culture's popular everyday picture of mind-body dualism. So there's not much difference there. But both of those are very different from what dualism actually is in philosophy. So in medicine, as in the everyday culture, the idea is that dualism is the separation of the mind and the body in our thinking or in our language or in our medical practice. So dualism is something we do and we can choose not to do it. So if I say "Mm, the psyche and the body are different So psychiatry should be separate from medicine. People will say, ah, you're a dualist. Don't be a dualist. Dualism is bad, right? And then if I stop saying that and say, well, we should unify psychiatry and medicine. It's all one thing. We're all unified. People will say, what a relief. Dualism is gone now. Uh, (laughs) Philosophically speaking, this is inaccurate. But, you know, in everyday life, that's not such a big deal. In medicine, that confusion causes a whole lot of trouble. Right. And this is dualism defined in an epistemic way, right? The separation of mind and body in our thinking, in our knowledge. And as you say, this is something that we can notionally correct or avoid. You see dualism in more ontological terms. What, what is dualism from that perspective? Well, I'm just reporting what dualism actually is for philosophers. I mean, in philosophy of mind, uh, people are not trying to work out what anybody should do. Uh, philosophy of mind is kind of an area of metaphysics. It's not ethics. It's trying to figure out the nature of things. What is a mind? How does it relate to a body? Or uh, currently, really, the question is, what is a mental state? Or what is an experience? And how does it relate to a brain state? That question is a question about the nature of things. And we can't change the nature of things with our speaking. So in reality, there's nothing about dualism in philosophy that suggests it's a bad idea to separate mind and body in your speech or your language or your medical practice. That is just false. That's just a misunderstanding. So the idea in medicine that you must prohibit separation of mind and body uh, in order to provide good patient care, that 
is understood to be philosophical in medicine, in reality, it is just pseudo-philosophy. There is no basis in philosophy for that idea at all. That really has nothing to do with what philosophers are doing with dualism. But does it help to distinguish philosophy from ethics here in some sense? Because, I mean, my academic background is in continental philosophy, uh, feminist philosophy, so I'm, I'm very schooled in this idea that dualism is a bad thing, this cultural understanding that you identified before. And the account of dualism in medicine that I'm familiar with is that when we separate mind and body, we're buying into a whole series of associated binary oppositions where you have mind and logic and reason all lining up on one side, that's associated with maleness and then body and irrationality and base matter on the other side are all associated with being a woman. And the argument is that that kind of dualism can result in very bad medical practice and it belongs back in the Victorian era. You you don't go along with that? A lot of what you said is very complicated. So like sorting out the details of that would take a lot of time and a lot of detail. But if you want to know what philosophers of mind are doing, if you want to know what it means to investigate the question of dualism as a philosopher in 2022, that is not it. All of the inquiry into what is consciousness, you know, these new books coming out about consciousness, these new debates about panpsychism and what does it mean to be conscious and All of this effort to sort out the neurocorrelates of consciousness in the brain and cognitive science and neuroscience, all of this stuff is based on a really powerful clarification of dualism that occurred in the late 20th century that the public is just terribly uninformed about. Everybody seems to think we're still debating Descartes, right? Do we have minds and bodies? And if we do, oh my gosh, that's two different things. How will they interact? And there's all this baggage about, you know, binary ways of doing things and that none of that actually applies in current philosophy of mind because we're not trying to sort out whether we have minds and bodies. We're just asking, do we really have experiences? Right? And a dualist is basically in this day and age, someone who says, oh yeah, we do. We have mental states. We have experiential states. They're always correlated with brain states. But in the world in which we live, they're different from brain states. If you don't distinguish your experience from the brain state that it's correlated with, you won't understand what you are as a human being. So there's really an entirely benign idea, dualism in this era. There's nothing to fight about. It's just a given in the way that we live that we have experiences and they're different from the states that our bodies have. That's all dualism is. So really nothing threatening about it at all. And of course, we're not just um, discussing matters of academic interest here. I mean, you actually believe that this philosophical misunderstanding about dualism in medical practice poses a physical threat to any of us whenever we go and see the doctor. How is that the case? I get that that's a very shocking idea uh, to people generally that that philosophical misunderstanding could be harmful in medicine. It's actually really shocking to philosophers to think that the mind-body problem could cause harm, that misunderstanding about it can cause harm, but it, but it does. And it's a very actually a very simple path. If you think that dualism is the separation of mind and body in your thinking and your medical practice, and you think dualism is bad, 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 then you're going to think in every case where a doctor has to decide, did the psyche do it or did the body do it? She should not investigate. She should not try and figure out, do you have a disease or do you have a psychological problem? In actual medical training, in medical textbooks, in practice guidelines, this 
is the way that questions of diagnostic uncertainty are handled based on this misunderstanding about dualism. When a doctor reaches the point where she wants to sort out, well, I'm not sure what's causing your problem. It could be in the body or it could be in the psyche. This confusion about dualism has filtered into medical training. So at this point, she's trained, instead of trying to sort out whether you do have a disease or a psychological problem, she's told to just stop, 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 stop. Do not look into it. Do not investigate disease. Do not investigate anything. Call it a mind-body problem. And if you call the problem a mind-body problem, the word for that in medicine is psychosomatic. Psych means mind. Soma means body. So every unexplained symptom in medicine is automatically understood as psychosomatic, and all psychosomatic conditions are managed in psychiatry. It's all based on research in psychiatry. It goes without saying that psychosomatic symptoms don't require medical testing or treatment. So as a result of this confusion about dualism, all medically unexplained symptoms are psychiatric symptoms in medicine. But obviously, this is very dangerous, right? Because a great many people have diseases that are medically unexplained for a long time. So if the doctor assumes in every case that an unexplained symptoms is, is a psych problem, a whole lot of people with tough-to-diagnose conditions don't get the testing and treatment they need. So it ends up causing a great deal of harm um, that nobody ever sees. Everybody is so sure that we want to get rid of dualism that nobody ever kind of looks into it. You're listening to The Philosopher's Zone. I'm David Rutledge, and I'm talking this week with Diane O'Leary about the philosophical misunderstandings that doctors can fall into and how that bad philosophy can have dangerous consequences for patients. You've been writing about this with reference to long COVID, which is really interesting, and I want to talk about that in a minute. But there's also an interesting story, sort of an origin story to tell at this point about chronic fatigue syndrome and how the medical profession's misunderstanding about dualism with that disease really illustrates your point. Tell us the story. What what happened there? Chronic fatigue syndrome, it's, it's not the term that's generally used now, but the, the thing that, that most people understand as chronic fatigue syndrome has been around really... I mean, really, it, it came to um, the consciousness in medicine, like in the 1980s, right around the time that the field of psychosomatic medicine was establishing itself. So what happened there is that they looked at all these patients who had symptoms that were very confusing. We didn't understand what was causing them. They seemed to be related to a virus, but you couldn't quite sort out how. And of course, they were mostly women. And there's a long history of tying women's unexplained symptoms to hysteria, of course. So what happened at that point was that the field of psychosomatic medicine applied this nonsense about dualism in a way that shuttled all the patients with this unexplained condition into psychiatry. So the idea was, well, we don't know what's wrong with you. It could be the mind. It could be the body. But we don't want to be dualists, so don't be looking into that. Instead, all you have a mind-body condition, a psychosomatic condition, and to treat that, you need psychotherapy, you need cognitive behavioral therapy, you need exercise, antidepressants maybe, well, maybe not anymore, or you know, anti-anxiety meds, this kind of thing. 
the patients obviously were very frustrated by this. There's a whole lot of conflict about it, a whole lot of activism, a whole lot of anger on both sides. The thing is that in 2014, uh, the U.S. health organizations looked into research on the biology of this condition and research on the psychology of this condition. And their conclusion was unanimously, this is a terrible mistake. These patients have a disease. The research that says this is a psychological problem is not credible. Do not rely on that anymore. These patients have a disease and they need medical care. So this was an unequivocal decision. And at this point now, England has also adopted that perspective. Of course, it's very slow in practice. So there's a whole lot of doctors who still are sure that their understanding of mind and body is better informed than these very rigorous governmental studies that have concluded that that was an error. So it's a long time in practice, but that's the general picture uh, with chronic fatigue. So what about long COVID then? Are we seeing the same story play out all over again? Yes. And it's very, very sad to see. For me, it's quite astonishing because I've been working in this area for eight years or so. I've had a lot to do with uh, chronic fatigue, which is now called MECFS, and you know a lot to do with the UK decision to uh, shift over from a psychological to a biological perception of that disease. And now here we are, and suddenly there are literally millions of people around the world who have something very much like MECFS, uh, chronic fatigue, and here we have uh, the whole uh, medical system around the world going, well, I don't know, mind, body, I don't know, probably you need psych care. So it's really just an astonishing manifestation of a problem that's been in place for a very long time uh, in medicine, in medicine's confusion about the mind and the body. Um, so I should say that, you know, is it, we don't probably have a lot of time to talk about gender here, but, you know, there are strong ties between psychosomatic symptoms and women in medicine, obviously, the doctors are actually trained to accept that the vast majority of psychosomatic symptoms are women's symptoms. Uh, So when they diagnose problems in the mind rather than problems in the body, or, you know, when they diagnose psychosomatic symptoms, they're trained to do this predominantly with women. So the fact that long COVID affects three quarters women has had an awful lot to do with medicine's reluctance to take it seriously and with the reluctance of healthcare systems and governments to institute serious, rigorous research and, you know, serious directives to clinicians to take the problem seriously rather than dismissing it as a psych issue. So when a doctor concludes that the patient with medically unexplained symptoms is not in fact physically ill, or at least they throw their hands up and send them off to the psychiatrist. What are they getting wrong here with respect to the difference between objective evidence and subjective experience? Because that's another philosophical confusion at work here, isn't it? The, you know, the, between the nature of subjective and objective when it comes to evidence-based diagnosis. Yes, it is. And, and that's a really tricky question. Everybody knows that you know when a patient says, oh, my back hurts, uh, that's subjective. But if you go and you have an x-ray and you see a a fracture in there, that's objective, right? The thing is that the idea of subjective symptoms, the idea of subjectivity, there are a lot of different senses in which something can be subjective. And there's a lot of confusion in diagnostic practice that trades on that ambiguity. So the doctor will often think, well, 
you tell me your back hurts, but that's just subjective until I find something in the in tests. And if I don't find something, it's just subjective. It's unverified. You don't actually have a problem. Go see the therapist, right? In reality, the subjective objective distinction that matters for medicine is the difference between facts that are private and first personal and facts that are public and available to science. So the difference really isn't if it's subjective, it's unverified. If it's objective, it's verified, right? That's one way of seeing subjective and objective. In medicine, what it really means is it's subjective if it's an experience only I can access. And it's objective if it's something the doctor can access. So the fact that the doctor doesn't find something in no way implies that there's nothing there. That's the error. It only implies that there's something there and the doctor can't see it. An x-ray or a scan or something doesn't verify something subjective and turn it into something objective. Nothing can turn my subjective experience of back pain into something objective. It's just by its nature, it's going to be private and no doctor will be able to access my actual experience. That's all subjective means, really. But the doctor, doctors are generally inclined to think that until you get a test, it's only subjective. And if I never get a test, well, you don't really have a problem because it's only subjective, right? So it's just trading on an ambiguity there that that we could really uh, clarify to improve practice. Yeah, it's a real challenge for medicine though, isn't it? Because it sounds like what you're saying is that the foundational first step in any medical diagnosis is the patient's account of, of what's going on and that grounds everything else. So medicine then has to not just take it seriously, but in some sense that's what medicine is. It's, it's a science of subjective uh, private experience, right? Which is by definition inaccessible. Yes. Well, that is certainly my picture. I mean, this isn't the most common perspective in philosophy of medicine, but my understanding of medicine is that medicine aims to improve and protect experience. Medicine aims to improve your suffering, your bodily suffering, your psychological suffering, and it aims to protect it so that, you know, if all of your experiences go away, you're dead. <laughs> so medicine is aiming, I think, to understand your bodily experience or your psychological experience, understand it, and uh, understand it in a way that allows them to address it. And then once they address it, you know, they have to go back to you and say, well, did that work? Right. It, you have to begin, as you say, with the subjective experience and end with the subjective experience to verify because medicine can't get in there. You know, this is human nature. Our experiences are private. Even when we're suffering greatly, we can only describe, describe poorly. Right. Medicine has to ask how we feel and try to sort it out, try to improve it and then ask, well, did it work? Ask how it how it feels again. So if I understand you then, what you're saying is that medicine's conceptual foundations need to be expanded to include subjective experience as a fit subject for science. But in, in doing that, are you not then compromising or, or at least you know, radically complicating medicine's claim to scientific objectivity? There seems to be a really fundamental tension there. How would you resolve it? Well, that is a mighty question. 
actually, this was an endeavor that a doctor in, in the late 70s tried to sort out, George Engel, who insisted that, you know, medicine's focus on just the body is problematic and you need to focus on the biology and the psychology and the social side of health in order to adequately care for people. And, and that makes really good sense. The thing is, at that time, well, for one thing, Engel was very, very bad philosopher. So he's the one that set everybody off with this confusion about dualism. And here we are. But also, since Engel's time, philosophers have worked out ways of understanding the reality of experience that do not compromise science. Um, as we do it now, property dualism, which you know philosophers generally, generally understand as non-reductive physicalism or maybe naturalistic dualism, these ways of understanding dualism are not antithetical to science. They are perfectly aligned with science. So there's nothing about recognizing experience that actually compromises medicine's claim to science. It's just that in medicine, everybody thinks it's still Descartes. So when you say dualism, they're like, no, 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 we can't do science. But in reality, that's just not true anymore. We have ways of, of understanding experience and still doing science. So where does all this leave psychosomatic medicine then? Maybe we'll finish with this. And, you know, the notion that sometimes medically unexplained symptoms are the result of mental or emotional states, because the examples we've been talking about have been uh, MECFS, long COVID, and the answer to the question posed by medically unexplained symptoms there is uh, look harder, work harder to find a diagnosis. Don't stop looking until you figure out what this disease is and how it works. But aren't there still going to be cases where the, the answer to a clinically mysterious medical problem is psychotherapy? Or, or, or do, you, do you sort of reject the grounding assumption of, of psychosomatic medicine altogether? Uh, no, no, no. I, I mean, philosophically, it's very complicated, the idea that the mind would deceive itself into thinking it has a sensation. So there's a lot of work to do there in philosophy of mind that no one's done. But let's just set that aside. Uh, no. I fully accept that people have psychosomatic symptoms. You know, if you have a job interview, your stomach might hurt a little, but then the more you focus on your interview and you get anxious, the more it hurts. We all have these kinds of experiences sometimes. So no, I, I don't have any resistance to that. I'm not saying that this doesn't occur. I'm saying you can't do medicine with pseudo-philosophy. It's not good. It's not good. You need to do science. Instead of saying, well... I don't know, it could be mind, could be, bi could be body, oh, hands off, go away, go away. Instead, you need to say, okay, what are the rigorous scientific standards we have for sorting out when symptoms are caused by the psyche? To the best of our ability, maybe we can't sort that out. What are the rigorous scientific standards that we can sort out for biomedical problems that are as yet undetermined? How can we scientifically draw that line in a way that's rigorous and safe and reliable. We need to do science. And if we can't sort it out, we need protocols that tell us how to manage the uncertainty in a way that's safe. But right now, we have none of that. There is no science in this area at all. It's all this reckless avoid dualism stuff. Um, so really, that's the answer. Sure, psychosomatic medicine, but, you know, get rid of the psychiatrists who are doing it. And instead, really, you have to base it on science. It has to be medical science um, that drives it, medical rigor and caution and concern for safety. Diane O'Leary. She's a philosopher based in Maryland, USA, and she's the author of a forthcoming book titled Gaslight, How Bad Philosophy Corrupts Good Medicine. 
And I'm going to put a link to Diane's website on our website because there's a whole lot of really interesting research there, as well as links to publications and presentations and commentary. This is The Philosopher's Zone, and you can find us via the ABC RN website or the ABC Listen app. And I'm David Rutledge. Thanks so much for your company this week. I will see you next time. Bye for now. <laughs>